We believe that alcoholism is a disease and that Alcoholics Anonymous is one solution to that disease. I'm here to bring you the voices of its members. Everyone that comes on the show, including myself, is an active member and has found recovery in the rooms of AA. As you listen, please take what works for you and leave the rest. So if you can start with your name and your sobriety date, followed by your story of recovery. Um, Listeners, please take what works for you and leave the rest. I will remain silent during your story and ask a few questions at the end. Thanks, Tara. Uh, I'm Gary. I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety date is February 3rd, 1980. So uh, last Monday, I I celebrated 40 years of sobriety. Uh, I was thinking about, uh, I haven't actually um, given this much thought. I've uh, I've, uh, shared my story uh, many times, uh, but... Oh, uh, well, by, I guess it was about, uh, well, it's 2017. I ran across a article in the grapevine that, um, I th- that really brought me back to, you know, my, kind of my, uh, the beginning of my um, issues with alcohol and the events that occurred shortly after. And uh, it, was, uh, it, it was brought to my attention by uh, an article in the grapevine um, uh, from December, I think, 1917. Uh, uh, anyhow, I was born in San Francisco, and at an early age, we moved. I was five years old. We moved to a small, uh, uh, the city of Pacifica, which is down on the coast off of Highway 1, about 17 miles south of San Francisco. And uh, in Pacifica, they have, there's a bunch of little suburban little towns um, along the coast um, from... Uh, and then we were in the southern area called, and it was called Lindemar. And there was a Lindemar Beach, and then right next to Lindemar Beach was uh, Pedro Point, which was known for a lot of surfing and so forth. So we surfed, and uh, we were at, uh, if you go down uh, the uh, highway today, and you go down uh, Cabrillo Highway, Highway 1, on the coast uh, from San Francisco down as if you were going to Half Moon Bay or so, you would see right in Lindemar uh, there will be a big old Taco Bell. And this big Taco Bell is is there, and it's very attractive looking and, you know, does very well there. But back in the 60s... uh, the uh, what was in what was in place of the Taco Bell now was a big house, and it was owned by this guy named Felix Seidler. And Seidler was uh, he had his own issues uh, going up, but he had a son, and and uh, anyhow they served and we served, and we would always go over to Seidler's house, you know, from the beach because they had a. Uh, they had a 55-gallon drum, and we would just, uh, you know, we'd put the wood in it, and we would warm up from uh, either uh, sandboarding or surfing or whatever we'd be doing with the guys. And uh, so we kind of just hung out there a lot of times, you know. And that was a place to meet, and then we would go from there to whatever we were going to do. Anyhow, so one day, um, the uh, we were going to be going to this uh, dance at Pedro Valley Elementary School where I went to... Uh, elementary school from first grade to sixth grade and they had these dances that were put on by a 
car club. It was either called the Idlers or the Millers, one or the other. Anyhow, these guys were older guys, and they would put on these these dances, and they would be held at, uh, at this one was held at this Pedro Valley uh, Elementary School in the multi-purpose room where they had a stage, and they and uh, they would play. I have the basketball too, uh, court, and then the, the the tables would come out of the walls for lunch, and you know those the, the, that type of a place. So I knew that. So the plan was we were going to go to this. Well, one of the guys says, "Hey, why don't we go and we'll we'll take a couple, we'll take some booze from our parents, and uh, you take some booze from your parents." And there was about three or four of us, and we'll all and then we'll meet down at Sidler's, and then we'll decide we'll drink, and then we'll go to this deal. Well, none of us had ever drank before. I was sixteen years old. Yeah, so we get down there and. Uh, uh, my parents drank bourbon, uh, and they drank. Uh, uh, it wasn't what the hell was it? Uh, oh, I can't remember what the drink is right now. Um, but it was uh, it had uh, Old Crow bourbon. I remember, and and then uh, you know my other buddies, uh, their parents drank uh, gin, uh, gin uh, vodka martinis and the other guys drank gin and so anyhow so we get down to this get down to Sidler's about uh in the evening and we all have a little bit of this booze that we had taken from our parents and filled the bottles back up with water and so forth and uh so I don't know whose idea it was or what would happen. I don't know if we we all mixed it all up in one big big batch and drank it, or we drank what we brought. I don't know. Remember what the hell happened? But anyhow, so we drank all this. And we drank what we had, and as I recall, it wasn't you know a, a lot. But uh, so then we walked up to Pedro Valley School to go to the dance, which was only about ten fifteen minutes away. So we go up to this dance and. Uh, by this time, I'm feeling very good. I am feeling exceptionally well. I'm very confident. I'm feeling like I'm looking real good too, you know. And there's a lot of there's a lot of girls there, but most of the girls are on one side of the multi-purpose room, and then the guys are on the other side. The band's playing, but most of the time, the girls are just dancing with themselves. They don't, you know. There's no. And so I come in there with the guys. I don't know what happened to my guys, but I come in there and I'm kind of like walking right through there and I'm feeling great. And I'm I'm feeling so clever and so cool. It's kind of like John Travolta, you know, Saturday Night Fever cool, you know, and I'm walking right across this stage or this the, where the multipurpose room, the floor, and I walk right up to these gals and I'm asking them to dance and they're accepting and I'm dancing with them. I'm dancing with some of the cheerleaders, the popular girls, you know, and uh, I'm just feeling great. I'm feeling fantastic. Well, you have a great time and one of the wonderful, most wonderful time of my life, you know. So we go back and, you know, the next uh, the next day we're all talking about it and, you know, who I danced with and what they said, you know, and all this. And, and um, it was just wonderful. So naturally, as an alcoholic, you know, you, well, heck, I got to do this. We got to do this again. So the next week, they were going to have another dance. And it was uh, at another little place over in Linamar called the Tiki Hut. 
And this little tiki hut was a little just a, you know, community-type place. And they had a band there and same type of situation. And we were going to do the same thing, except one of my guys says, hey, you know, my parents, they found out that I, they were asking some of their booze was missing, you know, so I, I don't want to do that anymore. So we said, well, well, what are we going to do? And, and my other buddy says, well, my bro- older brother says, why don't we go in front of, you know, Bert and Ernie's, uh, or Bert and Ernie's, Ernie and Walt's liquor store in Lindemar, and we'll ask somebody to buy us some liquor. And I said, I, I don't want to do that. Well, one of the guys said he was going to do that. So he does that. He sits in front of Walt Ernie's at a liquor store right in the Lindemar Shopping Center there. And sure enough, he comes out and he's got a bag of, of uh, we don't know what it is. We go over to Seidler's. He comes over and we're over, over there. And it turns out he bought two six-packs of Rainier Ale, which is referred to as the Green Death. And it's in these little green cans that taste god-awful. And that's what we had. So we didn't know any better. So we sit down there and we drink the, we drink the spirit. And I think there were like three, I forget how many of us there were, three or four. <clears throat> so we drink this. And so we were going to plan was, you know, we get up and after we drink, we go over to the Tiki Hut and we go to the bands, do the same thing we did back at the Peter Valley Elementary School. Except there was a there was a little stark difference of what happened there. Is what happened was, you know, we drank the beer and then I woke up or came to about two o'clock in the morning with my head in the sand over by Seidler's. And I woke up and nobody was around me and I picked up my head and on the side of my face was all this caked in sand from something that was wet that I had my face in, which I assumed it was probably either water or beer, but maybe it was something else. So that, me trying to chase that dream, that feeling, that the emotions that I was feeling in Pedro Valley School, I tried to duplicate that And what I got was that next week with my face in the sand, not knowing what I did, how I got there or whatever happened. And I chased that that Pedro Valley feeling for, you know, for 14 years. And I was always trying to get to the point where everything was going to be just perfect as it was then, you know, because I knew that's where I wanted to be. And I probably got close, you know, a number of times. The times I drank, you know, they certainly weren't all bad, you know. There were a lot of good times, just as Bill talks about in the big book. You know, I had a lot of great times, but then I had bad times. And then the bad times started to get closer and closer together. And then what would happen during the bad times, events would start to pop up, you know. I'd miss work, I'd get fired, and relationships were gone, I'd get in trouble with the law. And uh, these things, as as my drinking continued, it got worse and worse and worse. You know, people were worried about me, people were concerned, my parents were concerned. My dad had actually, when I was 21, he was ironically killed by a drunk driver on his way to pick me up from a New Year's Eve party. 
<clears throat> my mom was an alcoholic, as uh, she had stated, uh, and she died. Uh, you know, my mom was had issues when we were growing up. Uh, you know, with my sister and I, but um, you know, they were working class people, and um, that was kind of like the way life was back then, I guess. So you know, I. I got, you know, they say that's old adage, you got sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I, you know, things started happening in my life. So things started falling apart. You know, we didn't. And then one day I was coming back from a uh, from a, a party or, you know, some sort of a gathering. And I was going through San Francisco, lived in San Francisco. And I got pulled over by the cops. And it was, uh, I had to go to drunk driving. So I had to go to jail. And um, and one of the things, uh, one of the conditions in my, when I had to go to court was I had to go to three AA meetings along with paying a fine and you know, few and then then going to an alcohol uh, counseling deal which which was put on by the Highway Patrol, and I was right in the middle of trans, uh, moving from San Francisco to uh, Petaluma. And it was a job-related thing, and my wife was, um, my wife was with me at that time. So I had to. We were we were going up to Petaluma, and I had to go to these three AA meetings to um, to um, to get my little slip signed so I could bring them back to the uh, to the court, and, and that could be you know that would be one thing I'd, unless I had to accomplish. So. I went in to this meeting in Petaluma, and um, it was a typical meeting that you have. There's probably 12, 10 or 12 people there. And they, as they do today, they ask if there's any new members in their first 30 days of sobriety. Are there any guests or anybody want, you know? And I sat as, as close as I could to the door to get out of that place, you know? I looked around there and they just weren't my kind of people, you know, and I certainly didn't deserve, you know, deserve to be there. I was also, you know, I was pissed off because I needed, I thought that the cop was a little, uh, you know, over the top. The judge was probably in a bad mood. I, I should have paid for a more expensive attorney, you know, and, but these things happened. And so I had to go find myself in this meeting. So they ask around and, you know, and, and um, I'm the only new guy there. It turns out that these guys had been meeting there for you know, 20 years or so, and I'm the only new guy. So they're looking around and asking, is there any, anybody that wants to introduce themselves? So we could not, uh, uh, you know, and I wasn't out to make new friends and certainly in Alcoholics Anonymous. So I had... Uh, I'd got my three, and they kept coming back after the meeting. You know, they would kind of converge on you to, geez, you got to keep coming back. You got to get a sponsor. You got to do this. You got to do that. And yada yada. You know, and oh, right. You know, and I'd always, you know, I was always coming back for another two times. You know, to get my slips signed. <laughs> and so, and uh, and so I did, and I got those two slips signed, and I got the three, and so I turn him back in and to my um, uh, probation officer and, you know, and everything was all good. And so then I was just going to, from then on, I was just going to watch it. You know, I was just going to make sure that I, you know, didn't step over the line. I certainly didn't, if I was drinking and getting behind the wheel and, you know, I was going to do things a lot differently then. And uh, things didn't 
turn out. They turned out differently for just a short period of time, but after a while, things kind of go went back to the way they were, you know. And I would convince myself that I certainly wasn't uh, didn't have a problem. I think the only thing I realized that my my uh, definition of an alcoholic was certainly not uh, one who has lost the power to control his drinking. That guy was the guy who, you know, didn't have a job. He didn't have a place to live. He wasn't paying his taxes. He was scuffling along on the sidewalk with two different types of shoes on and, you know, drinking out of a bag. And that was my definition of an alcoholic. Uh, you know, he drank every day and he drank, you know, whatever he drank, you know, but that was just, uh, hell, that wasn't me. So it was, it was really kind of funny. We talk about, uh, you know, almost a year went by from that time I had to get my three slips signed. And and I'm living in Petaluma, and I, I would have these horrendous hangovers, you know, and I would get these hangovers, and I wouldn't want to talk to anybody. I'd take the, you know, the phone off the hook, and I'd put down the shade, and don't talk to me about what I did last night. Don't tell me what I did. And so well, I don't want to hear it. And then I wouldn't do anything for... You know, three or four days, I would just not drink for sure, because if I drank, that's what an alcoholic does, you know, and I wasn't an alcoholic. Um, I paid my taxes. I had a you know house and two cars in the garage. I had all these things. How in the hell can I be an alcoholic, you know? And uh, so that went on for that year. And then about just about uh, a year from then, I woke up one Saturday morning with my wife was I was on uh, my wife was on the couch. <laughs> And I was, which was fairly normal on a Friday night, I'd come home drunk and, you know, she would uh, have to leave the bed and she would go into the front room and sleep on the couch. But um, <clears throat> she, I woke up that morning and I'd always had that remorse and the anxiety and the fear and the humiliation and that pitiful, incomprehensible demoralization that they talk about. And I, God, I had that every time. And I woke up this one morning, one Saturday morning, you know, and I had none of those feelings. I had no regrets, no remorse. Physically, I didn't feel like I normally would feel. I didn't have any of this, the anxiety, the fear, none of that that I had always been used to, you know. I had none of that. I felt free. I knew I was an alcoholic that morning. I knew I was an alcoholic. Nobody else, people were calling me an alcoholic for a long time. But today, that morning, I believed it. And I believed I knew what I needed to do. So I go right back to that meeting that I went to a year prior. And damned if these same guys aren't still there. And it was kind of like, you know, they had the clock on me. They knew, you know, that I was either going to be coming back or die, one or the other. That was probably about two choices I had back then, anyhow. So I did, and I, I raised my hand, and I said, I'm Gary, I'm an alcoholic. I didn't say it like that. Actually, I said, it, I'm, I'm Gary, I'm alcoholic. I couldn't even get that word out because I'd never said that before in my life. I had never uttered those words that I'm an alcoholic. So it was difficult <laughs> getting it out, but I believed it. And that was the most important thing. I believed it. I didn't have to believe what everybody else was telling me about what I was doing. You know, I believed it myself. And I knew maybe this AA, even though I realized at that time my life was pretty much over, you know. My social life was pretty much over. There wasn't going to be anything left for me to do, you know. I might as well be, you know, some 
he'd do in the, in the mountains somewhere, you know, in some cave, because that's what my life was going to be. But I was re- ready to accept it because that was actually better than what I had going anyhow. So I knew, you know, I had, I was willing to do whatever it took. At that point, I was willing. And a lot of times I know people come into this program and we're certainly willing. We're willing until everything starts to work itself out. We're willing until the family gets back together. We're willing till the job comes back. We're willing to, you know, and then all of a sudden, we're not as willing anymore for some reason. We're just not as willing. But I kept being willing. And I, so I did what they, you know, I followed these guys around. They said, you got to get a sponsor. No, 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 no. No, you got to get a sponsor. You know, you're going to, you're going to, and then what they used to tell me, you just get drunk and die. That's what you're going to do, Gary. You're going to get drunk and die unless you start doing what you're supposed to do, taking direction. And one of the things was I had to get a sponsor. So I didn't know how to go about getting a sponsor. But I, uh, and they said, uh, and, and it's different, you know, and, and, you know, you have meetings here and they'll ask if as you're holding hands, would anybody who has completed the 12 steps be a sponsor? Raise your hand, you know. Well, that never happened back then. You know, you didn't, you know, they didn't, you had to go out and find your own sponsor. So you had to find out who's who. Now that, that, uh secretary of that meeting that I went to to have my three signatures done, I find out that he had uh, like seven or eight years sobriety and he had a mistress and his wife and children at home. And this guy was, uh, you know, he was actually would 13-step a lot of the women, you know, in the program back there, which I didn't know. I was told this later. And then it was, you know, because my sponsor told me, stay away from them. Stay away from them. And he'd point out the people to stay away from. He said, you stick, you know, you stick with the winners, you know, you'll become a winner. So, I don't know why I got off on that, but <clears throat> anyhow, so I didn't know what uh, what to do about the sponsor. So I, I followed these, you know, I would go to the meetings in Petaluma, and you had two different places in Petaluma that you'd go to meetings, and then you can go to Katati and go to Santa Rosa and so forth. So I'd follow these two guys around, Richard and Bill. And I, boy, these guys seemed like they were having a hell of a time, and they had a, a very jovial, and it seemed like they were really, you know, genuinely happy. Not phony happy, but genuinely happy. And... Uh, I didn't know if that was genuine or not, you know. So I kept following them around at different meetings, and I come to the conclusion that it was genuine. So I asked, you know, and I'm the type of a guy, I, I, you know, I'm kind of the macho, you know, it's kind of hard for me to, you know, Jesus, you know, would you would you really be my sponsor and help me? It seemed like it was kind of a lame thing to do, and it kind of a just, you know, wasn't a very macho thing, you know. So, But I knew I had to do this. So I mustered up all the courage that I could, and I, and I, I came up to Bill, and I said, "Bill, I said, would you, would you sponsor me?" He said, "No, I'm not going to sponsor you." <laughs> he said, "But he will," and so Richard did. Richard was his sponsee, and Richard was sober for three years, and Bill was sober for five years, and then Bill's sponsor was Bodega Bud down in Bodega, long-haired, white, hippie dude, you know, been sober for a hundred years, you know, that we'd go down to meetings and 
Bud's wife would she would bake German strudel, you know, and we'd have these meetings, you know, till, you know, 12, 1 o'clock in the morning. It was, you know, it was great. So Richard became my sponsor, and then uh, they said, you know, we're going to, he was always were, you know, for some reason. We're going to give you some suggestions, you know, that you do. And they're not really suggestions. You need to do these things. Even though they say they're suggestions, you need to do these things. And some of them are not going to be real easy. Some are going to be a little tough. But, you know, if you if you do these things, you know, you'll become a much better man, you know, much better father, much better, you know, husband, much better, you know, worker and everything else. So, But if you don't want to, you don't have to either because we've got other things to do too, you know. We don't have to, you know, we're not going to waste our time with you either. So either do what we suggest you know, or hit the bricks. And that's kind of how it was. So I was in, in the willingness. I was in that mode for sure. So uh, we did. We started going to, uh, you know, uh, he suggested that we go to 90 meetings in 90 days, which I did. And then after it was around somewhere around 80-something days, you know, he says, you know, I think you need to do 120 meetings in 120 days. And I'm thinking, what the hell did I do to that? You know, because I think this is kind of like more like a sentence than anything else. But he was trying to figure out how willing I was. He didn't, they didn't really know either. So I did. I did 120 meetings, 124 months going to meetings every day, all over the place. You know, and we're doing this and we're going to. Uh, um. So in the meantime, my mom, my mom lives in Roner Park, which is about. 12 miles north of Petaluma and mom's drinking up a storm my dad has passed you know and she's you know she's just uh, you know married uh, married you know Howard Howard's an alcoholic you know and this whole thing was going crazy and then mom would always end up calling my sister and myself and it you know all hours of the night and you know and complaining on how you know what rotten kids we were growing up and you know we, we should appreciate how great that she is and you know and and it just goes on and on and on, you know. And this is what happened while we were growing up. You know, my dad would drink and he'd go to bed. My mom would drink and stay up. And then she'd tear off in my sister. And then after my sister had enough, then she'd come to me. But I started to get the idea as soon as she was done with my, I'd split, you know, if I could. So I wouldn't have to be, you know, privy to all that stuff. So it was just, you know, on and on and on. So... This is the same thing's going on when she's, you know, she's up in Pelham and she's, uh, she's uh, 63 at the time. And I, uh, and she's up, you know, and, and calling me up. And, and I, I bring this up to different meetings in, in the meetings in Petaluma. And finally, one of these guys, no, it wasn't, wasn't Richard or Bill. But Bill, uh, Lou George, who had been sober for a number of years, or one of the elders of them, he said that, uh, he said, you know, you better do something about your mom or you're going to be drunk. you got to make a choice. What do you want? You know, because every time you're coming into these meetings, you're talking about, you know, how this is affecting you and how this is, you know, and you're not doing a goddamn thing about it. So do something about it. So <clears throat> I thought about that, and I talked to Richard and Bill, and then they kind of they 
thought along the same lines that something had to be done. You know, you couldn't keep going on the way I was, you know, with my mom there. So my mom is a very proud person. She's and she's living up in one of these four-star uh, mobile home parks, which is a very luxurious place up in Roner Park. It's really nice, and and um, so when. One day she calls up and she's, you know, half in a bag and, you know, she's going on the same thing over and over. And I made a decision then that the next day I was going to go up there or call her in the morning when she was sober. And then I was going to tell her. So I did. I said, you know, I called her up in the morning and she's talking like nothing that happened the night before. Now, I don't know if she remember what the hell happened or not or whatever, but, you know, that was never mentioned but I told her I said mom you know I I hey uh, you know a son can't love a mother more than I love you but I can't afford to be with you anymore so I told my mom I said I just can't you know I can't stay sober and worrying about you and doing all this stuff so I've I've made a decision that um, I've got to I've got to cut you loose and I did and as soon as I did, I had all hell broke loose, you know. So mom calls up about uh, five o'clock that afternoon, and she says, "Well, I hope that uh, I hope you and your sister are happy, you know, because I have a bottle of uh, Secondol and a fifth of Old Crow or whatever, and uh, I'll be dead in the morning. I hope you and your sister are satisfied." So that's how she ended that. So then I'm thinking, oh, sh- you know, what the hell am I going to do now? My sister's in San Jose, and I'm right here. So I called my sister, and she said, well, I don't know. What are you going to do? I said, I don't know what to do. And so I said, I think what I'll do is I'll call the cops and see what they can do. And so I called the Rona Park Police Department, and they said, well, what we can do is we can send a patrol um, a patrol over to uh, for a safety check or safety, you know, whatever, and see, you know, what your mom's up to. I told her, I said, she's, you know, she's mentioned suicide and, you know, and all that, and we're just, you know, I don't know what to do. Anyhow, the next thing I know, I get for about 20 minutes later, I get a call from this guy. It's Officer So and So from the Rona Park Police Department saying, I'm in your, uh, Gary, I'm in your mom's living room. I said, You are? He goes, Yes, my partner, Joel, here is, he's talking with your mom as we speak. I said, uh, He said, Up till now, she hasn't. She hasn't mentioned suicide or anything, we can't, so we can't really. And then all of a sudden, he said, wait a second, Gary. What's that, Joel? Well, I guess my mom had mentioned something to Joel about, you know, it's not worth living. It's not, you know, so all of a sudden, the, he, they, she mentions that, and then the officer says, you know, well, what we can do is take her in for a 72-hour psych hold. I said, he says, what do you want me to do? <laughs> I said, oh, shit. I said, I don't know. And then I thought to myself, you know, if I have my mom arrested and she's pranced out there in front of all the neighbors and all that, there's one thing that's going to happen or won't happen in the future is I won't be getting any more phone calls from her. So I said, go ahead and arrest her. So they arrest my mom and they take her away into the police car 
and I don't know what happened after that, but she was there for, it wasn't 72 hours, I think it was for 48 hours or something like that. Anyhow, so I don't, I didn't know what happened. <clears throat> so, about uh, a week later, I get a call from my mom saying, I've just came back from my third AA meeting. He said, well, that's great, you know. That's, I said, that's fantastic. She said, you know, it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm feeling a lot better. I know that I've, you know, and she was remorseful about, you know, things and so forth. And so uh, we started going to meetings together and doing things together. She was never, uh, <clears throat> mom never did the steps. <laughs> she says, you're, I said, you got to get a sponsor. She says, well, you're my I said, no, I'm not your sponsor. <laughs> you got to do this program, you know. And and but you know she she didn't do a lot of the things that we're supposed to do that are suggested in the program of you know Alcoholics Anonymous, but she remained sober, and that when she helped other people for twenty years, which was great. So um, so that ha- you know that was that was my third year of sobriety. I was only I was three years sober at that point, and. Um, and then at the fourth year, uh, Richard, my sponsor, he uh, decided <laughs> he was going to be going back to Texas, where he was born and raised. And Richard was involved in a armed robbery in Texas many years ago, and he was the getaway driver. Now, Richard had Christine and four children at home. And uh, we can understand about the ninth step, about making amends, except when it's to injure them or others. Richard wanted to make amends to the state of Texas for some reason and admit that, hey, you know what, I was the getaway driver in this armed robbery 10 years ago. Bill, his sponsor, said, what the hell are you thinking about? You know, I said the same thing. Everybody was, you know. What's going to happen with him? Oh, it's going to be fine. Everything will be fine. Couldn't talk him out of it. Couldn't talk him out of it. Goes back to Texas. And I say, well, thanks for coming coming in, Mr. Poole. You know, bailiff, you can lock him up. You know, they gave him six years for that offense. They gave him, I take it back, they gave him 10 years. He served six years. Six years in Texas. And in the meantime, Christine's wife and four children, you know, they're trying to, you know, live their lives without their husband and father and provider. So very selfish, you know. Uh, Richard never did get sober when he got out, and he committed suicide about four years ago. It just goes to show, you know, that, you know, Taking direction and you know taking guidance, you know, no matter what, you know, you know that's what we we need to do. You know, we don't have all the great decisions making powers ourselves. So, so that happened uh, right when I was doing my steps, and then my Catholic Mac was my next sponsor. You know, and I had a bunch of people in my corner though. 
So Catholic Mac was a very, uh, he was a very strict uh, Catholic, as you can, and uh, he was, um, and myself, I'd never been baptized. So it was kind of like two ends of the spectrum, which was, you know, and he said, you know, and he told me, he says, it's probably best that you weren't because you don't have as much conflict as we. So so we went through and and, uh, we we were doing the steps and, um, I went through the steps and, you know, a very slow motion. Uh, you know, I went through the first three steps in a year it took me and, uh, the rest of the, and then I, uh, it took me, well, I guess Matt came in at the end of three years. So, you know, about three years for the 12, but, you know, uh, Bill would always say, you know, that, uh, there was, there's no race, there's no checkered flag at the end of this thing. So, you know, we need to thoroughly follow the path and, uh, the path is you know, the steps, the path is the big book. So <clears throat> going forward, <clears throat> excuse me, going forward, we had, uh, had, um, we had moved. Uh, in the meantime, I was. Uh, I should go back just just a little bit. Um, um, when I was five months sober, um, five or six months sober, my wife was pregnant, as I had mentioned, and uh, she was uh, seeing the uh, obstetrician in uh, UC Davis in San Francisco. Well, we were living there. We were in a transition, you know, moving, and she had started seeing them. So anyhow, so we went to an appointment down there, and and uh, my my wife was eight and a half months pregnant, and uh, the doctor, the obstetrician, said um, this baby is uh, has some issues. One, the abdominal wall was not fully developed, and then had other issues. And the doctor said that the the baby was not going to live; or was going to be born still. And uh, that just came. That was after eight and a half months. Right, that's what going through all the, the sonograms and everything was all fine, and all the you know the appointments and everything. And so all of a sudden, this is laid on us, and it was a shock to us both. And um, so the the plan was, my wife had to go into the. We went back home to Petaluma, and then she had to go in the next day, and she was going to have the um the baby um and so we went down and you know she gave birth and sure enough and then they showed the baby and came out with the baby died but put the baby in the blanket and showed us i don't know how you know i don't know what to deal with but you know we did so it was kind of very difficult for both of us um, and I'm sure especially for my wife that uh, so we went and had um, when uh, the doctors had to keep my wife um, in the hospital for till the next day now uh, I was there uh, Bill was there my sponsor uh, uh, Rich and my sponsor was there Bill was there and we were all um, they were very supportive through the whole ordeal and and so, um, as uh, we left that night, I was gonna go back to Petaluma, and then I was gonna pick her up the next day. 
So I go back to Petaluma, and then Richard and Bill said, listen, we're going to go out to Two Rock, which is a Coast Guard uh, base out in, uh, at Two Rock outside of Petaluma um, on the way to Bodega Bay. And we'd go to meetings on there Friday nights religiously. And uh, so we're going to go out there. So I said, I'll meet you out there, and we'll go from there. Well, as I'm driving, I get home and get ready to go, and I'm driving along Petaluma Boulevard. Uh, to go north and go out towards the uh, the base, I stopped right, right on Petaluma Boulevard, right next to the Buckhorn Bar. And the Buckhorn Bar is right to the side, right on Petaluma Boulevard. And I stopped there. And I don't know how long I stopped. It could have been, you know, 10 seconds. It could have been, you know, two minutes. But I was thinking to myself, you know, screw this. You know, this higher power crap, all this, you know, I'm going to these meetings, I'm doing this text, but I got a sponsor, I'm doing all the stuff that I'm told to do, and this is what this is what I get, this is how it comes down, this is the return on, you know, my investment, you know, and I'm going on and on and on and on. And uh, I don't know how long I stayed there for, but at the last, I thought about my wife and what she's going through. And usually, I don't. I in the past, I didn't think about much about anybody else. It was just me, you know. But I thought about her, and what this would be if I went into the buckhorn. What would this? How was this going to affect her? Not let me take care of myself. That was the main thing. Let me take care of myself the way I always have, you know. But I thought about that. And I, again, I don't know how long it was there. Then I, I left, and I went to Pedal, I went out to Two Rock, and I went to the meeting out there, and I sat out there with a lot of people that I knew and a lot of people I didn't know, and I shared with them that experience. And they're crying, I'm crying, and everybody's, you know. So then I went back, and I picked my wife up the next day, and and, uh, and two years later we. Uh, we had a very healthy baby boy, which is uh, great. Now, after my son Garrett was born, um, it's um, we had two more miscarriages. So then we thought that there was never anything wrong genetically, but we were always just, Jesus, you know, what the heck? Then we thought, well, what, maybe what we should do is is uh, uh, adopt a child. That way, you know, we wouldn't have any. You know, this would be. Good deal. We could take somebody who needed, you know, parents, and and this would be good. Well, we get a hold of the child protection, uh, not not it was a, it was a, the state or Santa Clara County adoption agency, and she comes over, and she's interviewing us, and uh, so we go through a couple different meetings and fill out all the forms and everything and. And uh, she comes over one day and says, well, you know, good news. We have two opportunities for you, Ren. I said, oh, great. So she's sitting, I'll never forget us. We were sitting in the kitchen table. And she says, well, we have, we have two opportunities. One is a, uh, a woman who was actually, um, she was a uh, meth addict. And she passed away. And the husband is doing time in one of the state prisons. 
And uh, the other opportunity is a uh, gal that is uh, lives up, I forget where she lived, and she's a heroin addict, but she's trying to get clean. And and so we're sitting there, you know, kind of, I said, well, this is kind of peculiar. So I asked her, I said, well, aren't there any babies available that we could adopt that don't have, you know, parents that have... You know, drug addiction, and and I'll never forget. She says, "Well, well, Gary, you're an alcoholic." And I said, "Well, that since I'm an alcoholic, that doesn't mean that." I said, "I've been sober for eight years. Does that not count for something?" And she says, uh, "Well, you know, we don't really look that favorably on uh, recovery as maybe you might want us to." So. This is the opportunities that we have for you. So any time I have an opportunity to talk to, you know, recovering alcoholics, I always tell them, unless there's something in writing somewhere, you know, that you're an alcoholic, you know, don't cop to anything because that stigma is as strong today as it was back then, as it was many years ago, and it still is. So I had... uh, uh, I'll never forget that. So, and then, uh, you know, two years after that, then we had another very healthy son born. So so that all worked out pretty well, you know, in the long run. But it was a couple, you know, it was tough. It's tough staying sober during those situations, too. You know, I don't have the, I didn't have the, the experience of getting through these situations, um, uh, that came up in life sober. I was, like I said before, I was always taking care of myself, you know, first. I was always saying, hey, let me, I'll take care of me first, and then if there's anything left, you know, well, we can look at you, you know. But that was the way it was, the selfishness, the self-centeredness, and the ego and, and everything else. So so we went up, and, and uh, we, we were living in San Jose, and um, uh, we came up to... Uh, we went from uh, Petaluma, where I'd go to meetings that were, you know, 12 or 15 people, to San Jose, where I'd go to a meeting there were 300 people. You kind of get lost in the shuffle. I had a real hard time for those five years we spent down there. And I'd call my friends and sponsor up in, you know, up in Petaluma, and they'd say, well, you know, I told this one, Glade was a good friend of mine, and he'd been sober for a long time. And... uh He'd say, well, why don't you start going around to little places down in Los Gatos and Saratoga and places like that and go on down the coast and find those AA meetings there and start attending those and see what you think. And if you don't like that, why don't you start your own goddamn meeting, you know? And that's how things happen, you know? So that's what I did. But my program down there was not as, certainly was not as strong as it was in Petaluma. In 1990, um, I had... uh, I got a sponsor that I had, Vince Kane, for his, Vince passed away three years ago. I had him for 26 years, and and uh, he helped me immensely through a lot of things. And uh, you know, and he was always very um, affordable with his time. And he would always, you know, he never told me one thing or the other what to do. He would just ask me if he thought about, you know, different alternatives to what you're about ready to do. And uh, he would always bring up these things that I didn't think about, you know, and I think that's what a friend or a sponsor does. With I've been sober for a number of years. He'd certainly been sober for 
you know, 40 years or so. But uh, he'd always bring up situations that I had not thought about. And so I'm still willing today to listen and hear and receive direction. You know, even after 40 years of sobriety, I certainly don't know it all. You know, and I'm certainly, that's why I'm still coming to these meetings. And uh, today I I, uh, I go to four or five meetings a week. I go out to, I have a, I have a meeting I take out. EOP program. That EOP program is the essential outpatient program. This is a AA meeting that for these guys that aren't going anywhere. They're there in there for life without the possibility of parole. Most of them are in there for murder with gang related activities and so forth. But every once in a while they'll go up and they'll have uh, they'll be granted a parole board hearing. You know, and um, but. These guys still keep going to these meetings because, and I've asked them before. You know, why, why do you come to these meetings? You know, you know, you're sp- you know, going to spend the rest of your life in prison. And uh, you know, and I said, you don't have to give me a bunch of crap. You know, just you know, tell me what it is. And then because they, most guys that are going to get parole dates, they can get rack points and so forth, and they can get out a little early or, or whatever. And most of these guys, they come up to me and said, you know what, just makes me be, I'm a better person because of it. As simple as that. So if you're a better person, I think that's what this program does for you. You become a better person. Um, You have opportunity to enhance, you know, other people's lives, too. Um, with their, you know, your experience, strength, and hope. And I've always, uh, today, as it was, that was what it was, what happened, and what it's like today. Today is, like I said, I go to a lot of meetings, and I, I'm involved in uh, H&I. I, uh, I go out to the central office, you know, two days a month, and I fold, you know, flyers and by the ways with with, uh, you know, six or eight other people. And I'm one of the youngest guys there, so, you know, it's kind of fun to talk. And and they 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 buy me a donut of my choice, by the way, you know, every week. So it's, uh, it's enjoyable to be involved. I've always been told, you know, you've got to be, you know, you've got to be in the middle of the pack, you know, in the middle of the herd. You know, you see, you know, as you watch the National Geographic shows and you see the herd of elk going across the plains and you know and then you see the lions on the outside they're just looking you know and they're looking they're looking for that one elk you know or one antelope that has a limp or is kind of injured or kind of and he's kind of on the outside of that herd they don't go for the ones that are in the middle or leading that herd they're the fastest ones they go to the ones that are weak and they have and it's the same thing in AA you know, unless we're in the middle of the pack, you know, you know, or we're injured, we're going to be, we're going to die. And I believe that. I've seen it happen too many times. And so I always try and stay in the middle of the pack. And uh, and I would just so we say, you know, or the middle of the herd or one banana in a bunch or whatever cliche we want to use, you know. But we have to be involved and we can't... Uh, um, Today, you know, there's a, a lot of uh, opportunity for a lot of uh, people to help others. And uh, I think if we don't help others and we can't get away, you know, things are, it's not necessarily you're going to get drunk, you know, or you're going to go out and drink or anything. But when I get disconnected, you know, 
And I was just talking about that this morning, about, you know, my friend up there in Diamond Springs disconnecting from the program, you know, after he had received all these things through sobriety. Why would you give that away? Why would you sacrifice all of that that you were given? And I don't think it was intentional. That's what an alcoholic does. So we have to keep everything in check. I'm going to be an alcoholic tomorrow. You know, It's not going to get any better. And uh, it certainly can get worse. So I think that... Uh, I don't know what else I was going to... Today, uh, you know, today, uh, you know, life in sobriety is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad that I've said this before. If I wasn't happy, joyous, and free in sobriety, uh, you know, what's the point of this whole thing in the first place, you know? I'm a big fan of Duffy's. We used to go up to Duffy's up in uh, Calistoga when I first got sober, and he'd say the same thing if... He'd say, and I could say this, you know, how he would. He said, you know, after 40 years, if they told me 40 years ago, you're going to go to these goddamn meetings and listen to the same old crap from these guys day in and day out, drinking lousy coffee and drinking, you know, eating Lorna Dunes, you might as well just give me the bottle, you know. And that's what it would be. But, you know, AA has given me so much more. Uh, it's given me a new way of life, a new opportunity, you know, to help others. Um, it's given me a life that, that that the people that love me can enjoy also. Our loved ones and the people around us need to enjoy our sobriety as much as we do. We need to share that sobriety with them. And uh, they we need to make sure that they're comfortable too. And Because uh, we've certainly screwed over. And a lot of the people that loved us the most, well, we've screwed them over. And... Uh, and I don't know if they ever get over that, but I would always want to make sure that those those nightmares that we put them through, that we can put them through these new dreams that we have. I mean, there's new opportunities today that slowly, you know, those bad memories will lose their their substance, you know, and kind of float away. And uh, and I believe that today because I know that. You know, when you first get sober and, you, you, you know, you're, you're expecting, a, hey, Jesus, you know, I've been sober for six months. You know, you should uh, come back and we should get back together and like everything's great. You know, and that same guy has been screwing over his wife and kids for 20 years, you know, and he thinks in six months it's going to be all great. Bill had told me years ago, he says, you know, you show people by your actions how you've changed. Nobody wants to hear from you. So you find out from your actions and uh, let them draw their own conclusions. So. Thank you, Gary. I appreciate you being so honest and vulnerable, especially when it came to the story of your mom. I was hoping that you would share that. And I think that is hard to do at any time, but especially early in sobriety with your with your parent. Uh, it worked out really well. You mentioned that she didn't necessarily, you have a very strong program in terms of following all of the suggestions and um, you're a perfect example of what we call an old timer uh, celebrating 40 years this month. Happy birthday. Did your mom go to meetings? Did you go to meetings with your mom? 
Yeah, I went to meet with mom up in uh, Katati and Roner Park, and uh, and my and my aunt, Auntie Merle, was uh, also my. Um, they were sisters and had loved each other intensely, and so and she was uh, she was sober too. She was a both of them would go to the meeting. She would never go to a meeting if I was going to speak, though. So. I can't. I can't blame her there. Yeah, it was. Uh, I can see that'd be a, a little tough for her. But uh, like I said, neither one of them followed the program the way it's supposed to be. But you know, they what they did do is they they helped other people, and then they were you know they did that constantly. And uh, our primary purpose is to stay sober, and they did that. So I can't question. You know, I don't question anybody's sobriety. I, and that's why. I, or that's one of the reasons I love the take what works for you and leave the rest because we're we're all on our own journey. We all need something different to maintain our sobriety and serenity. Um, and I appreciate your open mindedness about it. I'm sure your mom does, too. And you talked about a couple of people, uh, Richard, who insisted on going back to Texas for his amends, step nine when that perhaps wasn't the, the best thing to do for folks. And you talked about um, the secretary with the mistress. So we're still alcoholics. We're still, you know, people can come to the rooms and, and point out these people doing perhaps not making the best decisions. But at the end of the day, we're all still alcoholics trying to become better people. And that quote from the book, love and tolerance of others is our code, is what we're trying to achieve or how would you define an alcoholic today? Well, I think I would decline, uh, define them as the same as uh, as an individual who's lost the ability to control his drinking. Um, you know, I I didn't drink uh, every day. I didn't I didn't drink two bottles of gin like Bill did. As I said before, I, I held a job. I provided for my family. I uh, paid my taxes. I paid my mortgage. had two cars in the garage. I certainly couldn't be an alcoholic. My parents did the same thing. They had all those things, and they were alcoholic. Um, the Once I started drinking, I didn't stop drinking. I had no control. People come up to me and all the time, you know, not all the time, but every once in a while. Then they, you know, I, I worked in an industry that uh, for 40 years that all they knew is I didn't drink. They didn't know I was an alcoholic. They didn't know that I attended AA meetings. They didn't know that all they knew is I was an al- uh, is I didn't drink. And I chose to break my anonymity on a few occasions to people that I thought would be benefited from that. Uh, my choice. Um, I could see the pain. I could see. I could remember, you know, you know, them going through the same thing that I had gone through um, constantly. So, you know, when you can't, when you have no control, you know, you think that your willpower, and there is no willpower, you know, our willpower is just virtually gone. Um, and... Uh, and when you look at the unmanageability of my life and you do that honestly without making concessions for 
or reasons of, you know. But looking at it honestly on how man how how manageable my life has been, man, there is no doubt in my mind, you know, that I had no control over alcohol, that my life was unmanageable, and I, I'm sure it would be still today, you know, with with you know in a short period of time. So I think the uh, the definition of uh, you know, or, you know, and they, they talk about the heavy drinker. You know, well, what's the difference between a heavy drinker and an alcoholic? I don't really know, but I imagine the heavy drinker didn't drink all the time, like me. Could I be a heavy drinker? I don't know. I read the book Experience, Strength, and Hope about the stories from from the from the first edition of Alcoholics Anonymous, and they're all. Low-bottom drunks. They had lost everything. I mean everything. And then the second edition, you know, those stories, not as bad, you know. And then the third edition, even, you know, less. They started to get these high-bottom drunks, you know, the guys that didn't have to listen. And then they came to the conclusion you don't have to. And it is. In, in Alcoholics Anonymous, it's not a requirement. We have to lose everything to get sober. It's not a requirement that you have to, you know, that you have to, uh, you know, you, you have to have so many drunk drivings and so many divorces and so many lost jobs. And so there's so many, there's a standing. So all of a sudden, you know, you hit all these marks and you're in, you know, you're qualified to go to an Alcoholics Anonymous. And, you know, that's something that you have to look at. And I think you were with yourself, honestly, you know, on how unmanageable your life is. And I know people that now they start to, you know, look back on their lives and and they listen to other stories and they say, Jesus, you know, maybe I'm certainly not as bad as him. You know, I never did that. You know, well, maybe I was a little rash and, you know, assuming I'm an alcoholic. Maybe I need to re-diagnose, you know, and then that's when we start having problems. I remember there was a story about Bill Wilson and his a gal came in and met him at the cafe, and she was wanting to talk about her husband who had uh, some real issues with drinking, and she knew Bill didn't drink. And she said, you know, Bill, I need to, you know, you know my husband is just, you know, every time he comes home, he's, you know, he's just miserable. He drinks all night. You know, he doesn't get up and go to work in the morning. He's lost so many jobs, yada, 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 same old thing. He goes, she goes, I don't know what to do. I need some help. And Bill says, you know, we started this program. It's called Alcoholics Anonymous. And we have meetings. And we talk about issues like that. And she says to Bill, well, Bill, he's not that bad. So I guess the question is, how bad does it got to get? How bad does it have to get? We don't have to. And I didn't lose everything. And, you know, and people say, well, I've hit my bottom. My sponsor used to say, says who? The only bottom I really know of is if your toe's up about six feet under. That's the bottom. And that's still a ways to go from where we think we, you know. So that was that's just my opinion. And I have 40 years of continuous sobriety. And I detest the guy that stands up in a meeting that says... You know what? I've gone out before. Everybody's gone out before. Or most of us have gone out. It's okay. And it's not okay. 
and I'll be the first to stand up and say it's not okay. So I said, the first thing that you're not going to know is two things will happen. When and how bad? And we can't answer those questions. And I've seen those questions answered, you know, throughout these 40 years. I used to go out, you know, when I, as I've said before, I used to have to go out because I didn't know what happened when this guy, you know, and I asked, I asked Richard and Bill, I said, what, uh, why is so-and-so raising his hand back up in a meeting and introducing himself? He goes, because he went out after a period of sobriety and he went out and got drunk. And I said, why do you do that? And Richard said, that's your job to find out. So I had to go out for the next, I don't know how many years, for the next five years, and I still did that after that. I would ask him after the meeting, if you wouldn't mind, can you tell me why you went out after a period of sobriety, you went out and drank. Now, I felt bad about doing that. You know, because I, I thought that the guy felt bad or the gal felt bad, you know, having to answer that to me. But I never got that from anybody. I felt those emotions, but they didn't. They were more willing to tell me, you know, why they went out, why they sacrificed what they had. They, they had gotten from sobriety through Alcoholics Anonymous and then went out and drank. And then, you know, and after a while, and today, I don't have to, just as I mentioned today about my friend up in Diamond Springs, I don't have to, I don't have to ask him. Why, I already know why he went out. They, they disconnect from the program. They disconnect from the very thing that got us sober in the first place, whether that's two years ago or five months ago or 22 years ago or a guy up in, you know, north, you know, he was sober 31 years and went out and got drunk. I knew a guy was, I didn't know him, a friend of mine, guy was sober 22 years, got drunk up at Tahoe, came off the hill, went, got in an accident, and, and killed himself. But <clears throat> after 22 years, well, this guy from 31 years, I, uh, I think I mentioned this at a meeting, I don't know if you were there, but uh, I, I mentioned it, I mentioned this at a meeting, and the next meeting I went to uh, was this guy's sponsor that was had he sponsored this guy with 31 years so I, I talked to him after he said Gary this guy hasn't been doing anything for 15 or 20 years nothing in the program as I spoke today there's a lot of people that are alcoholics that don't drink they don't consider them alcoholics now you know maybe they re-diagnose themselves you know but uh, that's that's what that's what happens. So they disconnect from the program. They disconnect. They don't they don't come to meetings anymore. They don't call their sponsors anymore. They don't check in with a higher power. They don't read the book. They don't do the steps. They don't do work with others. They don't do the very things that we did when we first got into this program and we first got a sponsor and he told us what to do. We took direction. And today, you know, we, 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 I run into people all the time. And, you know, I got this. I don't need to, you know, I don't need to. I think I can handle it myself, you know. And they do for a period of time, you know. But then you don't see them anymore. Just like, you know, we were talking this, this morning, you know. We can go through the, the men's list and the women's list and we can wonder, geez, I wonder what happened to, I wonder what happened to, uh, 
you know, Gary. I wonder what happened to uh, Sergio. I wonder what happened to, you know, you can go on Lee, you know what I mean? Well, where are these guys? Now, maybe they're going to different meetings. There's countless vain attempts, countless vain attempts, you know, to achieve sobriety. And, you know, a lot of people come in, you know, and, they, and, and God love them, you know. I keep, you know, I used to be, I used to get be very disturbed by people coming back because I didn't know if they'd ever get back. You know, it bothered me. So, but uh, uh, I would... Uh, uh, they do come back, and I'd always say you need to learn from what you did. Obviously, that way did not work, so you need to change. If you're not going to change in this program, you will not stay sober. I, I fully agree. You know, I, I, I'm convinced of that. You have to change. And I had to change. I had to change everything I was doing. I changed the guys I hung around with. I could change the guys I went. Uh, you know, I called on the phone. I changed. You know, my my associations with people at work. You know, I had to change all of this stuff. My patterns of where I went and so forth and so forth. And but I was told to do that. I was told you're not. You know, you're not going to be hanging around with these guys anymore. You're not going to be calling. You know, you're not going to be talking on the phone. You're not going to do any of this stuff. You're not going to this place over here. You're not going to the ball games. I've said this before. You know, I couldn't go to any weddings or funerals or Christmas parties or anything that had any alcohol for the first year. And they said, hey, and if you want to go ahead and hit the bricks and do it yourself, you know. But this is what you're going to do if you want to stay sober. So the person that we're talking about, are they doing that? No. Most of the people that don't get this program don't change. They don't accept it. They won't change. Or they think that they can alter the program to fit themselves. You know, I can work this out. It's hard staying sober. You know, you said we have to do the work. Well, what kind of work do we do in AA? You know, changing ourselves from the things that we used to do or, and, you know, and, and, and being able to now look at ourselves honestly, you know, and do things differently. That's hard. When we're used to doing things in a certain way, you know, mostly to suit ourselves, you know, it's hard to change that continuously, you know. We do find ourselves changing sometimes, but then all of a sudden we start, you know, just like we're talking to this point, we're trying to, uh, unconsciously, we find ourselves getting back into those same patterns. So we got to, we have to condition ourselves to get out of that and start helping other people. I hang around with a lot of people that have been sober for a long time. Some of them have very strong programs. Some of them I feel like I go to a meeting down in uh, on, on Kiefer, you know, over there, and I feel, and I, I tell them, I say, I'm Gary, I'm an alcoholic. I, I feel pretty goddamn inadequate coming to this meeting sometimes because these guys are. They know the book. They know the program. They live it, you know. And sometimes I'm thinking, wow, you know, I feel sometimes I'm inadequate, you know. But Bill had always told me, you know, he had said, you know, you see these guys with their books and they see them all outlined and they got 16 different types of highlighters on there. And this means this and this means that. And got this over here. And, you know, and you have all these different markers in the book. He says, I wonder how that guy's doing. Is he any better than you are at this program? You know? I said, no, he's not. You need to be honest with yourself, you know, and do the best you can. That's all they ask for in that book is to try. Try to do your best. 
You're not being graded on it, you know. No one's up there saying, oh, geez, you know, Terry, you should have been a little, you know, i got to give you a B minus on that, you know. You know, so you know we do the best we can, and I I, I know I've, I've I, I'm around people all the time and have a lot of sobriety. I sponsor guys that you know that are, have over thirty years of sobriety, and um, and they continue today, and and they have issues, you know, and we talk about them. I don't tell them what to do. I tell them what I do. You know, the guy's got thirty five years of sobriety. What am I going to do? Tell him, hey, we got to go back, and you know, maybe we should, you know. Do the steps? I don't think so, you know. I need to give him some experience from what I would do, you know. Let him. And he's the one looking for something, you know, other than what he has, you know. And that's what we have to do. We have to be able to help other people just by giving them an alternative of what they, you know, what we might think. So, and I think that's all I can do with someone who's been sober for a while. So that's... uh you are still able to get things from the program. Do you feel that as well in your life, that the program and going to meetings is not just about maintaining your sobriety or it's not just about I owe Alcoholics Anonymous a debt for getting me sober or it's not just about I have to carry the message, but there's something that you still get aside from sobriety from the program? Yeah, I get, uh, you know, I get to enjoy people around me that love me enjoy my sobriety and i think that's one of the things that i think we all have to look at it's you know too and i I said this earlier you know it's important that you know our loved ones uh enjoy along with us our sobriety and you know my sons have never seen me drink and i know we all you know we all kind of look forward to that well you know no you know it's my sons have never you know and that's great you know i mean that's one of the things that i i look back on and i'm proud of that um i i i went to uh i went to a meeting up in um uh i guess it was a year or so ago in a gentleman up there and i think his name was roy i'm not sure uh, uh but anyhow he was kind of a about five six five seven and he wore this little how, uh, cowboy hat and he had his um it wasn't a tie, but you know what the cowboys were, uh, you know. And it was a cute look. <laughs> you know, he had a cane, and I don't know. I guess he was, I guess he was in his eighties or so. He was celebrating fifty years of sobriety, fifty years. And so I went up to him after the meeting. I said, "Now he wasn't he wasn't chairing the meeting or anything, but he, he had raised his hand when they asked if anybody was celebrating a birthday that month." So I went up to him uh, after, and I introduced myself. Roy, I said, "I'm Gary." And I said, "Hey, I, you know, I want to really congratulate you on your 50 years. That's a, you know, half a century of sobriety." I said, "That is something to be." I said, "Is does it, does it always?" I was always told it's not about the quantity, but the quality of your sobriety. Do you? And Roy says, "Bullshit." <laughs> I started cracking up, you know, because I was told that early on with my sponsor. I said, we nobody, and they, and they didn't really in Petaluma, they didn't really put too much emphasis on the quantity of your years. It was the quality of your sobriety that was concerning, you know, to them. And uh, we'd have some guys that would come in, you know, yearly just to pick up their chip and, you know, but whatever. But, um, 
you know what I get out of uh, what I get, and I I love to learn. I, I I love to learn about how things were back in the '30s and '40s and '50s. I I like to read about how things were, and they must have been so difficult. You know, uh, they were going from town to town, and the meetings were very sparse, and and there and all the confusion and chaos and everything that went on. And and uh, I enjoy I enjoy reading about that. I enjoy reading the grapevine, li- listening to the stories, and and conveying those stories too. You know to other people i think the more we have to uh the, the more we have to give to the newcomer the experience strength and hope the experiences we can get from other people too and we can pass those along so it's not that i'm you know and so i think that i just don't want to be stagnant i want to be able to stay in the now you know and i i want to i want to find out what's going on now and and hopefully i can pass something along and 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 these things that happened in the past you know and how they did um, uh, Bill and Bob, what they did in the past, man, I think that's that historical significance is, you know, unparalleled. It's, um, and I, I think everybody should know about it. Um, you know, so I always try and find out. And I always, I'm a big supporter of Grapevine. I think that if uh, if you have, for, you know, like for thirty bucks or whatever a year, you, you know, you have all this great information at your fingertips. If you can't go to meetings, that's where they, you know, and the programs that they have, they have online meetings. They have all this stuff available. So I think we have to take advantage of it, you know, so we can share. So when somebody comes, hey, you want you want to sponsor me? Can you sponsor me? You know, that's a that's a hell of a responsibility. It's a big, big responsibility to sponsor. And some some people, you know, I can't wait till I get through the twelve steps so I can sponsor somebody. And I go, wow, you know, I go, that's not what it's about, you know. And if if everyone's holding hands at the end of a of a, of a meeting, and hey, you know, I don't I don't hold up my. If you want me to sponsor, you can follow me around. I'll tell you. I'll tell you where I'm going, you know, follow me around, find out, find out how I operate, you know, outside these meetings, because I sound real good between seven and eight o'clock at night, you know, but, you know, you don't know what I'm doing or going on kicking the dog around or, you know, yelling at my wife or whatever, you know, get to know, get a temporary sponsor and, and then find out, you know, through your own painstaking, you know, go to different meetings, find out through, you know, where these people are going and find out that uh, what you want from them, you know, that's what I want. I want to be happy, joyous, and free in sobriety like him, you know, like Bill and, and uh, Richard. And that's what I did. So what I say, I always say this is what I did, and I'm still sober today, so God damn it, I know it works, you know. I always say that. <laughs> and I never went out. I didn't have to go out. I got too many people going out telling me. You know, I used to have a friend of mine, and he was the, he used to, the newcomer that would come in again, he would thank him profusely, you know, thank you for coming back, you know, and letting us know that it's not working out there. And that's what they do. But some don't come back. Their pride, their ego, whatever, you know. And those are the people we wonder about. It's like Bill was saying in this one of his conferences, he goes, We're, what happened to all the 350,000 people that didn't come back? What are they doing? You know. And it's just like we can go through our little meeting list of men and women. Where'd they go? Did they find something better? You know? I don't think so. Not if they were alcoholic. So, you know, we'll be here. Our doors will still be open and we'll be well. So if we can gather that information and that edge, you know, we can get better and better at helping people, then we'll be ready for that person when they ask. 
Well, I'm glad that you're still here and you're still carrying the message. You listed a few ways we can get to the message and you sharing your story today and keep coming back is also on that list of ways that we can be close to the message and close to recovery. So you had defined an alcoholic as someone who has lost the ability to control their drinking. Final question for that person out there that is perhaps still trying to do the tricks to control their drinking, the beer only diet or the weekends only or whatnot, the ones suffering, not sure if they define themselves as an alcoholic yet, what do you have to say to them? And we'll close out with that. God love you. Keep, uh, you know, keep trying, you know, keep trying. If that's going to work, you know, and, uh, and, uh, you know, we're still going to be here. If, if your willpower or you think the willpower is going to, going to make it for you, you know, maybe it will. I'm never going to say, you know, you need to do this, you need to do that, you know. But if you find all you can do is be true to yourself and be honest with your assessment of the way things are going. And, you know, if you've got problems in your life and those problems are related to alcohol in any fashion, you know, there's ways that you can live a life of uh, a new life, a new way of life uh, without alcohol. And I'd say until that, you know, keep trying, you know. And I hope that uh, the only, like I said earlier, between the time that we, you know, we decide, you know, that, hey, we can do it by ourselves, you know, we can do it our way. And to the time we come into our honest, open-minded and willingness phase, you know, that we have given up and surrendered, we don't know what's going to happen between that frame of time and anything's on the table. Anything's on the table. So uh, we'll be here when you're ready. For more information, read the first 164 pages of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous or visit keepcomingback.net.